Welcome to another episode of the Reboot Chronicles, a no-holds-barred forum with global leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and CEOs about how organizations stay focused on growth and innovation in unprecedented times. I'm your host, Dean Tobias, coming to you live from Revive's North American headquarters in Chicago, and we would like to thank you for joining us from around the globe today. I'd like to welcome best-selling author, leadership guru, and past chairman and CEO of Tata Portfolio Companies in India, Ravi Chowdhury, to the Reboot Chronicles. Um, Tata companies employ over 800,000 people around the globe, and last year they delivered about 7.7 trillion INR, that's Indian rupees. So that's about $103 billion of revenue last year. Pretty impressive company. We'll, we'll talk about that. But he is also the founder and chairman of Sendex Consulting and Investments, which advises multinational corporations, governments, and governing boards, among other things. We'll get into that as well. And he's the author of a pretty cool book that's um, somewhat timely and um, called The Quest for Exceptional Leadership. Uh, Mirage to reality, <laughs> which I like, which kind of addresses the prevalent issues around um, leadership vacuums that are going on uh, around the world. I think it's more prevalent today. Uh, welcome, Ravi. You're uh, it's good to see you. You're looking good there. Oh, great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I. Um, is it okay if we start with uh, going back to your Tata years? You know, let's maybe talk about the impact um, at Tata, uh, which grew very rapidly when you were there. It's uh, it is quite a, um, a force around the globe, um, and mainly because a lot of things that you, you and some of your other uh, teammates did there. And the way I, I, I when I used to uh, talk with them, it's like each of the uh, Tata companies seems to be independently uh, run under the guidance and supervision of its own board and directors, and uh, which is which is good. That is the way I like to structure multinational corporations. It's just a smarter way to to uh, uh, kind of decentralize. So. I know the audience would be interested in some of that, those stories and, and my questions just to get it kicked off would be, you know, what, uh, what was it like in those very formidable um, expansion years when you were running Tata and um, maybe as a follow-up, once you kind of give ground us in that, you know, early on there, what, what kind of leadership lessons did you learn, uh, you know, both good and bad, obviously those are, those would be uh, of interest. So if you don't mind, let's maybe start there and then we can jump into what you're working on these days. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Dean. Uh, let me say what a privilege it is to have this conversation with you today. And uh, you have raised a question which I am always very happy to answer. Tata Group uh, has a unique ownership structure. Does. It's not owned by the family. 66% of the equity in the promoter company and the holding company is held by charitable trusts which are engaged in supporting education, health, uh, training of people, arts and crafts and livelihood generation. Why well, most, people, most people don't know that. That is, uh, that is extremely yeah, well, unique. This, this is the only structure of its kind in the whole world actually. Amazing. And therefore they always need a, a fairly decent chunk of dividends being given out every mm -hmm. year. I bet. The, the, the question of uh, uh, but share buyback doesn't arise normally, you know, because the money disappears there. And are, so are, while, are, are most of those charities uh, in India or are, they, or are they wherever those corporations are operating? Most of it is, is in India, but their work spans across different countries also. Mm -hmm. And they have been quite open about sharing what they do with anyone who is interested and is engaged in similar mission and efforts. 
You rightly said that each company is controlled uh, by the board of directors. But they all share the Tata ethos of governance, which was uh, unequivocally laid down 150 years ago by the founder, Jamshedji Tata. And he said then that in a free enterprise, the community is not just another stakeholder in business, but in effect is the very purpose of its existence. Now, I mean, today's practices of CSR- That was, that was pretty revolutionary 150 years ago. Yes. And, that and is what some, that time, some companies are finally saying that today. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll get we'll into that later. Difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, 150 years to say so. And they set up their first textile company. And the principal mission given to everybody was that employees come first. The people who work for us are like a family to us. Mm -hmm. And we have to look after them. And those days, of course, nobody left a job. And so they were wedded to the employ employer for the whole life. During the last 80 years, JRD Tata and Ratan Tata not only strengthened this uh, 23 word belief, but proved it beyond doubt that even for large enterprises, it's possible to do well and do good. You asked what uh, was our leadership uh, value system? Well, really, what, you know, what did you, in those early days, what did you learn about leadership? How did that shape you? Well, you know, we always, discussed among ourselves, and we believed in simple principles of leadership. Respect people, be it employees, customers, suppliers, distributors, or community. Mm -hmm. Follow the laws of the nations in which you are operating. Be fair and be transparent. This is it, no jargon. And Do what I've, you think always, is right. I've, I've... I've always found it hard to scale that. At, I mean, when you're, that sounds great when you're running a small, you know, one of the Tata divisions that's maybe consulting or something, which in itself, they're all huge now. But when they're small, how did you scale that though into these multi-billion dollar multinational and still keep that culture? Well, they, they have been able to do that. And of course, when Ratan Tata took over from JRD Tata, right. there were... Uh, three CEOs of large companies who started believing, oh, he is a young guy. So we, we, we really are the king makers. <laughs> and Ratan Tata very skillfully uh, made sure that they do not create that virus anymore. So yeah, he, takes, he takes, appointed new CEOs and they had to leave. And since then there has, hasn't been any looking back at all. So I think that's one thing you've hit on is, uh, you know, we've had a couple large family corporations on some of the largest in the world, like Amway and others on this program. And there's a consistency through the generations, whereas public companies, it's the CEO, CMO of the year kind of revolving door thing. And, and they find it very difficult to do what you, you were doing there. It's just, it's hard to keep that in a sustainable way. So it's an interesting, an interesting lesson. Um, you know, when we were talking in the uh, warm-up, you said something about leaders. Leaders know the issues that keep them awake at night, if at all, um, but they don't usually know the issues that should keep them awake at night. And uh, I didn't have time to ask you, what, what do you mean by that? 
Well, you know, uh, this is also a question I love answering. Business leaders are pretty good at keeping track of the company's performance indices. Mm -hmm. But somehow they still apply the toolkit of the yesteryears while asking questions and looking for solutions. They tend to miss out how radically the society has changed in the last two years, how the social contract which kept the wheels of economy moving is broken, uh, how the employees have awakened to the lack of equity, fairness, and transparency, and how an increasing proportion of customers are asking the tough questions on company ethics. So in my interaction with board and leadership teams, I usually begin by asking them a few questions to bring home this point. Are you aware that the world is changing faster than you can think in directions you are not familiar with and in dimensions you cannot conceive? In this scenario, how do you keep abreast of what is happening and distinguish between risk and opportunity or identify anomaly before it becomes an established trend. Right, but I mean, that's a good lead up question. Um, before you tell me how you answer it for them, what, 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 what are the most uninformed answers you usually get back when you ask that question? Because some oh, of them, well, some you of know, them, yeah. the, the, I have learned over the years that you don't only have to hear, but you have also to listen with your eyes mm -hmm. on what they say and what they don't say. The very often, but I, I won't say there are many great CEOs who have already transformed and in every country, they are role models sure. for the new uh, corporate mindset and heart set. But the ones I, you are asking me about, I think I, I sense in them a question. The world has no business to change while we are doing business. So they, they have that feeling. They don't realize that actually they know far less than they think they know. We tend to be constrained in the eco chambers of like-minded peers and self-confirming uh, news inputs that reinforce our beliefs. Right. We, um, our task is to ensure, I tell them, that what we know cannot become and should not become an impediment in knowing what we don't know. Well, that's the category I was going into. Um, good leaders always try to figure out, you know, let's try to figure out what we don't know. You know, we, we think we know something, but then someone else like you comes in or, or many of the friends of ours that we have that say, here's, you know, you don't know what you don't know, guys. Yes, and sir. they find it hard to admit that sometimes. But, you know, at Kellogg, I, I do this curriculum about how to reboot companies around people and platform and passion, similar, similar to what your, your three P's are and um, or C's. And, um, and, but I start out with a, a, a board slide. So if I'm in a boardroom, it's, it says, you guys are all BFSs. And these are multi-billion dollar companies. So it's like you're big and you're fat and you're slow. And, and they all kind of roll their eyeballs and they go, we know that. And we're never going to fix that part because we are so big. I'm like, it's okay. You don't have to. But it, if you put that in a Venn diagram, the connected tissue in the Venn diagram is irrelevance, obscurity, and decline. 
and many of you are in that mode right now, you just don't feel it. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know you're in the irrelevant stage or in the decline stage. You, do you, do, do you yes. see that much? Exactly. In fact, uh, uh, this is the biggest challenge that corporate boards face today. And we don't really have a program. We don't really have a methodology to keep board members apprised of what is happening in the world today. They only meet with their peers, as I said. And they are not sharing platforms with the people who have a different sense of the world or whose views are radically different. Well, exactly. So uh, I, I teach um, uh, corporate governance, both at Kellogg and at National Association of Corporate Directors. And it is a lot of us talking to each other, but we do bring in outside perspectives, but there's not enough board members that really invest in lifelong learning and education, because as you just pointed out, they've kind of, they've kind of got to that level um, of, of expertise or status or age and their, their lifelong learning doesn't absolutely, you know, it doesn't really, it's not kicking in as much. I've seen a shift in that more and more now. You know, we're building more diverse boards, meaning in my, in my opinion, more globally diverse, not just ethnically, um, more thought uh, diverse. And um, I, it sounds like you help, uh, you know, corporates do that. The, um, just switch into corporate governance here, then we'll kind of get into leadership later, but the, uh, or back into it, I should say. The, the current focus, uh, years anyway, seems to be around good corporate governance. I, I call it good governance. That's one of the hashtags I use. And and the challenges to democracy all over the world. And I think they're interrelated, by the way. Um, so, you know, if, if I look at what you're doing and how we're like teaching the next generation of board members, um, you've, why do you think there is this creeping inability or unwillingness um, on a part of um, board members, maybe leaders as well, you know, to face the new realities on the ground, or maybe a better way to ask that is, how do you teach them to do that better now? Uh, well, learning is a difficult process. Yeah. You know, just before the seminar, I made myself a cup of coffee and I added a little sugar. But when I sipped it, it wasn't sweet. I had not stirred the sugar. Sugar didn't get absorbed. Mm -hmm. Strangely, when you learn, you don't change. Only when you absorb, the change comes. I love that. It's a great metaphor. By the way, I use honey in my coffee. No, so, so, I mean, sometimes if you put the sugar in the bottom, pour the coffee in, it actually does stir on its own. But with honey, you have to vigorously stir it or, or there is no... no um, yes, so that, yeah. That is a fascinating uh, learning metaphor. How, how do you stir them up? Well, you know, for successful executives, the past is never dead. It's not even past. There are many issues that combine to generate the new reality, but they don't really observe it. They are paying not, they are paying attention to where they are looking from. No, they are only paying attention to what they are looking at. So one of the important things is to tell these people that look, if you pay the same amount of attention to what, where you are looking from to what and what you are looking at, 
you may be able to disconnect, connect the disconnect. Take, uh, I give one example. What are the catalysts of the ease of doing business in the new world today? I call them the new tenets of business and which includes seven non-negotiable elements. Now, first of two are relating to ESG. Decisive stakeholder primacy over shareholders. Social and climate justice. The third and fourth relate to DEI. Respect for women and minorities and support for youth activism and regard for trade unions and employees. Fifth and sixth reflect corporate character. Ethical corporate citizenship, transparency and humility. And seventh, create and nurture a company with sustainable profitability. Now- Do you, do you find that, uh, that's a long list by the way, the, um, you find that some boards maybe are hitting on a couple of those cylinders? Um, not all of those? I think uh, what, what I have as number seven is usually the only one. Exactly. That's why I brought it up. I mean, I, let's, just jump, let's just jump into a core issue. It's like, I feel boards, so we're talking corporate governance here, um, and, and then I'm going to ask you about govern, governments, but we're talking about corporate governance. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I feel boards have been way too reactionary since Sarbanes-Oxley has. So first they reacted to SOX and everybody had to see, I have a CFO on board. Mm -hmm. Then I spent a lot of time in cybersecurity. So cybersecurity was all the rage and we trained them on that. And they brought in cyber experts and, and got more technical or tried to. Um, then I moved to other issues. Um, currently it's on DEI or ESG. Um, so I, I find that they're not necessarily focusing on the future enough. I'm more of a growth governance uh, guru, if you will, or, or interested in that in most discussions. And they're really just kind of like, latching onto the trends. Do you feel like they're just overreacting and, and latching onto trends and worried about short-term? I mean, they have to be worried about short-term quarterly profitability. It's part of their job, but um, so I guess two questions. Do you feel like they're just too focused on the trends and how do they actually get to the sustainability part you talked about? Well, you know, the I can relate to your concerns. They, they, are, they, are, they are actual, they are real. You see them, sure. You know, I mean, there are always admirable examples in every country who are doing very well. But generally speaking, one can forget about long-term, even medium-term thinking is not discernible in so many corporate boards. <laughs> and it's basically because they have not been able to understand the rapidity with which the world is changing and the need to align themselves with societal expectations and preservation of nature. A look back would be helpful. You know, 300 years ago, industrial revolution and enlightenment mm -hmm. completely demolished the foundations of a big ancient order, the kings, the tribal chiefs, feudal lords, and religious heads were all shaken up. Today, in the aftermath of the pandemic, we are passing through a similar threshold moment in the history of the human race. A multiplicity of new forces is reconfiguring the, all, the world all over again. 
No industry and no business is being spared the impact. Some will disappear, but those who unequivocally understand that this is perhaps once in a lifetime opportunity to abide by the new tenets of responsible leadership, they will not only revive, they will thrive. Just because a few companies have been successful doesn't mean they'll continue to be successful. And I, I, I make this point very often. Success in last two to three years, there's no guarantee that you will now be able to face any issues whatsoever. Well, and at the board level, it's always been like you just said, short term, it's been corporate compliance. They think they're only there for compliance. And you're saying, no, their role should be more about shaping the character and the future of the company. I think you called it, you know, beyond making money is how, how is money made? Actually, what does that mean? Uh, well, it's basically time to change the narrative from corporate governance to governance of the corporation beyond compliance to corporate director, beyond corporate lobbying to corporate acknowledgement that society matters and nature matters more than all the corporations put together. I'm not implying that corporations need to be more altruistic. I'm flagging this issue because the mm -hmm. aftermath yeah. of the pandemic yeah. has clearly highlighted that leadership must transition to responsible leadership and entrepreneurship must transition to responsible entrepreneurship. So, and, and that's going to play out pretty aggressively, I think, over the next five years. As we head to 2030, it's hard to say that, um, it's going to play out in an accelerated fashion, we think, especially with private, uh, large private companies, because they have a little more flexibility to, to to make some bets, maybe not as much capital versus corporate. I still have a feeling that the public corporate boards are still, um, we use the word hamstrung a little bit where they, they wanna do some of what you're saying, but they are stuck in a model, like you said, that was invented maybe in the 50s, uh, 1950s, not 1850s. When you're talking about Tata, you have to, you have to clarify, <laughs> if clarify which generation. So I find that they like everything you say. They like going to the NACD training and, and such. And they're still in the old quarterly earnings release business models. Uh, Without getting yeah, too I, geeky here. I mean, I mean, let's take an example. Would that be fun? Let's just pick on a company. So let's say you join me at dinner with Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook, Meta, whatever they're called this week. Um, Speaking of jumping on trends, uh, good, good trends in their case, they've done well. Um, what would you advise him to change? And maybe his board is sitting there with us um, about his personal leadership, the way that they are actually running the company, their company governance and, um, and their impacts. Well, let's just do those two first, but then we'll, I'll, my follow-up I'll just give you now is you know, their, their impact on societies around the world. But let's start with, what do you change about your personal leadership and your, and your, corporate, and your corporate governance at this point, if you're a Facebook meta, Mark Zuckerberg? Well, Dean, we are well aware that it's not prudent to give unsolicited advice to anyone. Even more so if- it's is, that, is that what I've been doing wrong all these years? Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, getting anyone to change is difficult. And nobody changes because somebody asked one to change. 
But let's, I think but I let's would... change the question. Let's assume I put you on the board now. So now you have an obligation to answer these questions. <laughs> I would then ask him a few questions. Yes. That look, I'm on the board. We have built a formidable institution that touches the lives of almost 3 billion people on this planet, maybe beyond. Facebook platform has two missions, give, promote voice for the people and inclusion for the people, and give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. Now, I find since I have joined the board, Mark, that these mission state, this mission statement is not aligned with our business model. If we stick to this, which means that we must have trust of all our users and clients, and trust is like a mirror. If it's broken, it can't be revived. And that trust is today broken. What percentage of people trust Facebook? I don't know. But there are quite a few who are worried about the relentless exploitation of their privacy, who are worried about that how inane, virtuous things which one puts are kept to a smaller audience, but inputs of extremism and violence and hatred get a fillip and are circulated far more widely. So how are we going to do that? And I'm going to raise this question because Facebook was founded in 2004 we have an opportunity to create a new legacy platform in the 20th year of our birth, in 2024. Can we do that? It will mean lower earnings, but it will mean greater respect and sustained profitability, though lower, of the company. Yeah. Now, let me see what he says. It's a bold move. I mean, they could afford to have a little lower earnings for a while, too fund impacts and, and do a better job with societies around the world. Anyway, we're not picking on Facebook, but that specific guidance is, is that's the connected tissue that could translate to many other companies, especially media companies that have large, massive market share. You know, real quick, you're, the next couple of books you're working on uh, talk about governing uh, nations and, and kind of reinventing democracy. Just in a couple minutes, real quick, because we're short on time. What, what are the things that, you know, they can't wait for your book. So what, what's the one thing that you would like to tell leaders of countries, especially ones that are major impact influential, what should they be doing now that they're not well, doing it? I have highlighted in my book that difference between how democracies are run and how authoritarian governments are run mm -hmm. is becoming narrower and narrower. Demo people who want to win elections want to stay in power forever. And the question I'm raising to them is the same. Do you only do these things for love or power, or do you do it to leave a legacy which makes people respect you for ages to come? Now, you don't have to, to give up power for that. You only have to retune your own thinking that life is more about being more rather than having more. That's why we are called human beings and not human habits. 
So if you be more and make everybody else in your country become more, then perhaps you will continue to win elections and you will build a, a, a legacy which will last for much longer time. Then perhaps, you continue to do what you're doing now. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, power is an intoxicating thing. You're right. Uh, now let's shift to back to leadership. Your current book, you, you talk about how today's leaders need to rediscover the traits that are already inside them. Actually, you say they're lying dormant, I think is what you told me. How do you, how do you get those out in the... Well, you know, I, I explained in my last book that, you know, basically those who have reached the, the position of leadership, they all have what I call the base camp leadership traits. The traits pertaining to stance within, the physical traits, intelligence, energy, drive, professional will, and traits relating to interface with outside world, mind traits, pragmatic vision, transactional skills, perseverance, ability to motivate. Today, to become an exceptional leader, to go beyond the base camp to the summit of leadership, you need a new set of traits relating to the heart of the leader. It doesn't mean you have uh, to, to, to realign with your heart. These traits are already within you. These are the traits of one's conscience. And if you start listening to your conscience, then you are not only going to become a better leader, but you will also keep a strong legacy forever. And these three traits I speak about, one is the trait of wholeness, which is the 720 degree vision. Mm -hmm. You must have 360 degree your own vision and another 360 degree view from the perspective of those who are around you. Yeah, 720. And next is compassion and then transparency. Where does uh, mindfulness play into the next generation of leader? What would you tell aspiring leaders now about mindfulness? Uh, mindfulness in corporate context, I refer to it as disciplining attention. Hmm. Not only to what you see outside, but also listen to what your own conscience tells you. You have to listen to your inner voice and what you observe. And together, you are mindful. So it's not really a, a mindfulness, it's also bodyfulness and heartfulness. It's living a, a total awareness life. Right. I like it. Uh, Ravi, we want to thank you for joining us today. Um, I like the way you tied mindset into heart set uh, when you were talking about corporates and their, their actual, um, the way that they think about the world. So it all kind of ties together back to leadership. So, uh, Ravi, thanks for joining us. I uh, really appreciate it. You've been listening to uh, Ravi Chowdhury on the um, Reboot Chronicles. This is Dean DeBias. I want to thank you for joining us, and we will see you soon.